Welcome to episode 120 of Behind the Mission, a show that sparks conversations with SACOM trusted partners and educational experts. My name is Dwayne France, and each week I'll be having conversations with podcast guests that will equip you with tools and resources to effectively engage with and support military service members, veterans, and their families. You'll find the show on all the podcast players by going to sycamore.org forward slash podcast. Thanks again for joining us in Behind the Mission. Our work and mission are supported by generous partnerships and sponsors who also believe that education changes lives. Our sponsor this week is PsychArmor, premier education and learning ecosystem specializing in military culture content. PsychArmor offers an online e-learning laboratory that's free to individual learners as well as custom training options for organizations. On today's episode, I'm featuring a conversation with Army veteran Phyllis Wilson, president of the Women in Military Service for America Memorial Foundation the only major national memorial honoring the three million women who have defended America from the Revolutionary War to today. She served for 37 years in the Army as a military intelligence voice intercept operator, retiring after serving as the most senior warrant officer in the entire Army Reserves. You can find more about Phyllis by checking out her bio on our show notes. So let's get into my conversation with her and come back afterwards to talk about some of the key points. Phyllis, I'm so appreciative of the time that we have to talk about the significant contributions of women veterans and the Military Women's Memorial. But before we talk about that, I'd like to provide you an opportunity to share a bit about your story and why this work is so important to you. Thank you. I joined the Army after trying for a couple of years to make it on my own through college. Fortunately, I didn't know about student loans, so I was trying to pay as I went. And it was going to take a really long time. So at the age of 20, I stopped at a recruiting station and found a career field that sounded really intriguing and very interesting to me. And I thought, I'm going to do my four years, take that educational benefit, pop smoke, go back to college and become, at first I thought a doctor, but I did ultimately become a registered nurse on the civilian side. So I joined as a voice intercept operator, was sent to lovely Monterey, California, to become a German linguist and then was assigned to 3rd Armored Division defending parts of Europe back in the early 1980s. And now look what we're doing again. We're all defending against not the Soviet Union, but Russia. And so full circle again. I did all of that, met another soldier. We got married, started having children, and one thing led to another, just realizing it was very difficult in that era for it still is, but for both parents to be active duty military with small children, because we were go-getters and we know we wanted to jump out of airplanes. We want to do all those things. That means you need to have family or really dear friends nearby. And because of constant relocation, it was hard to have family nearby. So some dear friends that we've stayed connected to for now going on 40 years, did that, left active duty, became a reserve soldier. But along the way, continued to be promoted, ultimately becoming an Army warrant officer, having great opportunities for assignments and just stayed in love with it and did 37 years total time in the military. Along the way, of course, getting that degree that I had always wanted and working in the civilian community sector, getting my kids shuttled around to soccer and football and baseball and all the sports and going to afternoon and evening plays. And that was the good thing about being this mix and match part of the military. But after 9-11 happened, I pretty much was full time from 2002 until that when I retired in early 2018. But it was a great ride and I really enjoyed the opportunities 
and things that I had exposure to that I can't imagine I would have seen any other place except in the military. I think it's really interesting hearing that arc. And really, you served in three different eras of service, that Cold War era and staring across the folded gap, and then really the Gulf War One, that Gulf War era in the 90s, and then post 9-11. And, and I would imagine in the Cold War era, women in the military were relatively rare, especially compared to now. And you were almost maybe like an invisible minority. Now, I think current era, correct me if I'm wrong, it's a very visible minority in the military, like women are more widespread service in the military. But I'm curious what that shift was like for you seeing it over those three different spans. I notice more things like I'm a left-hander person. And so when I see other people that are left-handed, I notice that in a room. And sometimes only as I'm leaving a room or somebody else will say, how that feel to be the only woman in that meeting? I'm like, God, it didn't even, it doesn't even dawn on me sometimes. Mm -hmm. I grew up with brothers, a bit of a tomboy. So I'm very comfortable in that male-dominated space. And I think you kind of have to understand that 80% of the military on average are males. We're going to be a minority, but I always spent my career not really proving, but just trying to be the very best soldier that I knew how to be. Not qualifying it, not bad for a female soldier, just not bad for a soldier, a pretty darn good soldier. I'm very proud of my career. I pushed hard for opportunities. The opportunity in my early years, I had to wait nearly 10 years till I had a chance to go to jump school, to jump out of airplanes. And I wanted that so desperately. That was the only, like, to, to what I could see at that point, well, air assault and airborne were like the two big opportunities for women at the time. And not thinking at the time you're blazing trails for other people is just something I really wanted to do. I love the adrenaline. I love roller coasters. Anything that can get my heart thumping, I want to do it. And, and I absolutely loved having that kind of an opportunity. Now, it was one of those things in the early 90s. I was stationed at Fort Bragg. I'm walking by. I'm a young warrant officer now. And so it's one of those where enlisted soldiers normally would salute because you're sporting your rank. And they don't salute the person. They salute the rank, right? But I'm walking it down an 82nd Airborne area. And these two young army specialists walked by me. We made eye contact. They saw me, but they did not salute. They just had this look like, I'm not saluting you. And they walked past. If they just had missed me, I don't mind. I get it. You're busy. You're deep in thought. You're moving out to your next location. Fine. This was in the day I decided I wasn't going to put up with it. So I called them back and I asked them, why did you choose not to salute me? Had my maroon beret. I was, was proud. I was on jump status, all those things. When I asked these young two troopers, they basically said, our first sergeant said, you're basically their term, you're sucking up a jump slot that a man should have because you're never going to jump into combat. So men should have those slots, not you. And I said, really, let's walk back to your unit. Let's find your first sergeant. So we went through the whole rigmarole and I really wanted to talk with both the Sergeant Major and the first sergeant to say, listen, if this is how you guys feel about it in the early 90s, don't pass this somewhat dinosaur mentality onto these very young troops. These kids weren't even 20 years old. Mm -hmm. Don't do that to them because in their time, if they choose to make the military a career, things will have changed enough that <laughs> you're setting them up for failure or they're going to just make things really harder for themselves and for others, women troops, than it needs to be because we are coming through those doors and breaking those glass ceilings. And please don't do that anymore. And it was interesting because the Sergeant Major asked me so as an officer, why didn't you go to the company commander, the captain? And I said, because I was an enlisted soldier before I became a warrant officer, 
And those E4s, those specialists are NCO business. That's not officer business. You guys need to fix this, not him. So that was, that was just one of those early on issues. You know, here I was barely 30 years old and already running into some of those kind of pieces. But over time, I've watched to that, your point, that trajectory of how things have vastly improved. Yeah, it's been stunning to watch. And, and as I think back and reflect with your question there, Dwayne, is that sometimes you don't even realize that you're blazing some trails and that there are so few of us. And in military intelligence, it is one of the fields that you do find more women than certainly back then there weren't women in combat arms at all. And even in special forces community, they might have somebody there that might be a supply sergeant or, you know, a clerk in the orderly room, a female, but they were few and far between for the most part. That was an all male dominion. So it's been interesting to watch how this has changed. And, and I would say very prescient of you and not that far in the future because I was in the 82nd Airborne Division in 1997. So not that long after you as a team leader, my squad leader was a woman and when I became a squad leader, my team leader was a woman. And again, it was one of those things where the military did change. And especially after 9-11, the changes happened. And of course, now we are where we are. Women have been serving in combat before the combat roles were open. Oh, of course. You could even argue back when we were defending the Fulda Gap, we're up on a hilltop with an antenna listening to East German, right? If they start rolling through in no time, we're sitting ducks, four people in a Jeep with a big, tall antenna that we probably need to drop the antenna pretty quickly, you're going to be on the wrong side of the bad guys in no time. And how do you defend four people in a Jeep against probably tanks and motorized rifle regiments rolling through? Yeah, very different. But it was just one of those things we understood that was a huge potentiality. And so we trained really hard in the hopes that strong defense will cause the other guys to blink and think they don't really need to do this today. And I think that, in, as we mentioned before we started talking, I have had the honor to serve with, to lead, and to be led by women for my entire career over 22 years and absolutely recognize the contributions of women in the military. I've always said that the argument against women in combat stopped whenever my driver dismounted behind me in Afghanistan to make sure I didn't get shot in the back. Like I trusted her and my company commander and all of the women that I served with as much as I trusted the men. The recognition of the ability and the accomplishments of women service members is really long overdue. But I think as you were talking about back then, you saw that this was coming, that the roles are open and the recognition is starting to come, I believe. We've always wondered, you know, the chicken and egg thing, but we'd like to believe, and the more that I reflect on it and do the research and study, is that society, it's based on societal changes, right? And so one, it's needs of the country. The nation needed more service members than what they could get on the male population. That's when they opened up the aperture to allow more women to serve. But I would argue that society has changed to be more inclusive of women and the opportunities because of what women in the military have done all the way back really to World War I, where some of the women that spoke the day our memorial opened in 1997 one woman was a World War I woman, 102 years old. And she said, when I served in the Navy in 1918, women weren't even allowed to vote. Yet she raised her hand and signed up in the Navy to serve this great country, which she believed in as much as anybody. But at the time, legally, she was precluded from voting 
because Congress said women were not full citizens and that they did not defend the country. But why did they not defend the country? Because there were laws on the books that said only a man can serve in the military. So we can't defend the country, so we can't vote, but you're keeping us from defending the country. And only through a loophole in World War I were some women able to slip in, prove that they could do the full rights and benefits of being a citizen. And we'd like to believe that was really the tipping point that finally got, because for 40 years, women had been marching for the right to vote really seriously, woe for that, but 40 hard years, and it just wasn't happening. But suddenly this over 10,000 women served in World War I, and look what happened. The right to vote came shortly thereafter. And I think people, when they think of the military, they don't necessarily think of a socially progressive organization that does that. But if we think then about a lot of the history, and we're not trying to cover up a lot of the problems that the military has had, but racial integration, as you were talking about, opportunities for women out of necessity have come in the military sooner than they might have come to the communities. And a lot of these communities have been impacted. Communities have been drug along, perhaps, by the actions of the military. Yeah, especially for the cities and towns that are near military installations. When those desegregation in 1948s and landmark things were signed and to include the full integration of the military so that African-Americans had equality, there was no desegregated units anymore. That happened in 1948 and really came to fruition, I'd say, by 1950. But Jim Crow South was still going strong and would even after the landmark legislation of the mid-1960s. So we were well ahead of that, but because our men and women of any ethnicity had served side by side, shoulder to shoulder through World War II and then Korea, and we just kept going. And now it's like, we, I think that's what I love about the military is the diversity of thought and the diversity of our backgrounds, what we bring to the fight. And nobody discounts somebody by their skin color, not in the military. I've never seen it. There may be some jokes that are out there, but for the most part, we treasure and listen to every one of our military counterparts. And what they have to say can make a huge difference in how we operate and whether we win. So it's super important that we've got to listen to everybody. And so you and I are obviously talking about our service, right, and our experience in the military, but also you're part of the Military Women's Memorial Foundation. Washington, D.C. has a lot of memorials. Many are well-known, Washington Monument, Lincoln, and Martin Luther King Jr. memorials. And of course, those that, you know, we served Vietnam Veterans Memorial and the Marine Corps War Memorial. The Military Women's Memorial is situated there at the entrance of Arlington National Cemetery. What can you tell us about the Military Women's Memorial? Here I was serving in the military and all through the 1990s, they were fundraising and then broke ground in 1995 and opened the doors of it in 1997. I was at Fort Bragg. I didn't know anything about this great thing that was about to happen. And it was not until 2013. So 16 years after it opened its doors, I, I finally learned about the place. And it is beautiful. It's a big curved wall. It's a half circle curved wall as you're driving into Arlington. So many people, they're like, I don't know what you're talking about. But when I tell them or I show them a picture, oh, of course I've seen that. That's what it is. We just, because of its location, it doesn't have a big old sign out front that says Military Women's Memorial. But as you drive into Arlington National Cemetery, if you didn't turn to the left or right to go into where the gravestones are, you would crash into our front wall. 
but that wall was built in the early 1930s as the ceremonial entrance to Arlington, but built in the Great Depression. They never finished it completely. And then World War II happened, and then the 40s and 50s, and it just was left to get overgrown and look pretty shabby. And our founder, when she started looking for a venue, she looked at this retaining wall and said, this is it. This is the place that's for us. Design competition took several years. Over 100 architectural firms bid and submitted all of their renderings, had to go through all of the big commissions on fine arts and whatnot here in D.C. until they approved what we now have. So in 2013, I heard about the place only because a friend of mine was getting promoted and chosen to do it there. So I walked in and I'm looking around because I thought it was just a wall, but it isn't. It's like a museum behind there. And I thought, what the heck is this place? Well, it also has a massive database, a repository where we want every woman that has ever served or is serving now to put her own personal story into that database. So in very short order, once I learned about it, I went ahead and registered, put my story in there and just fell in love with it. And then in 2017 was the 20th anniversary. I came to the party for that and would have never imagined that in just two short years from being there with nothing on the radar of ever working there, that I would be the president of the Military Women's Memorial. I really was reluctant on even applying for it because, as I said before, being a soldier was all about just being a soldier, not a woman soldier. And while I somewhat understood the rationale behind it, I was ignorant of so many things. And for good or bad, during the window of opportunity to apply, they had a national search for the president of the foundation. Um, and I had heard about it, was being encouraged to, to apply, but I don't know, pretty comfortable where I'm at. And I parked in a veteran parking space. After 37 years in the Army, retired, drawing my retirement pay, I felt like I qualified as a veteran. But I got out of my car and a gentleman in the parking lot quickly hollered, excuse me, that is veteran parking. And I said, yes, sir, I'm tracking. Then he said, is your husband with you? And I said, no, I am a veteran. So we went through the whole rigmarole. Turns out, like you, Dwayne, we both had served at Bragg. We both jumped out of airplanes. We both, all these things. But he still was not sold on the whole thing. But I thanked him for his service. He did not reciprocate. I go into the grocery store and I'm not really angry with him, but I was just thinking if I had been a man that had not served, but pulled into a veteran spot and got out, that guy wouldn't, wouldn't have, have said anything yeah. to it. So, I, and I know because I've been involved with the memorial, even at that point, I know there's over 3 million of us that have served. And I thought, when is, how many more have to serve before we can just park in a veteran spot without being challenged on it? And so I, it was just enough of a, mm, to, to that, okay, let me go home, dust off that nonprofit resume and get an email to the search committee and look what happened. And I can tell you in the three and a half years now that I have worked as the president of this foundation and that incredible memorial where we start with the women of the Revolutionary War that took musket balls in their own legs and dug them out themselves so that they weren't found out to be a woman because they were disguised as men because women weren't allowed to serve from that era all the way to today. And so many fascinating, incredible stories. And I'm like, why wasn't this taught? Not just to women in the military, to everybody in the military and to America. And one of the key stories that I'm really excited about is the women of the 6888, an all African-American unit of World War II 
that just last year through our help, we were not leading, but we did champion the cause. They got the Congressional Gold Medal. So we've done a couple of events and, and we've screened documentaries there. But now this year, it has come up on massive radars of the women of the 6888. And Tyler Perry is now making a Netflix film. Oprah Winfrey is in it. Carrie Washington is playing the battalion commander of the 6888 in this. So it's really going to help to tell America this incredible story of what this unit did when they were shipped overseas. The last thing about this incredible group that how did I not know I'm Army, they're Army. I mean, I would have been a better soldier if I knew what these women had done. At Normandy American Cemetery, Dwayne, as you know, it's beautiful. It's all the white crosses. And it just seems like it goes for miles when they do the drone shots. It's just stunning. They're perfectly aligned. But there are only four American women buried there. Three of the four women are African-American women from the 6888 at Normandy. And so next time I go, I've got to certainly go and find each of their grave markers and say hello to them. And so it's been a fascinating opportunity. And I never would have imagined in my entire life that this would be like the perfect job for me. But it is. It's the only job I'll have until the day I say, OK, I'm really am retired. But yeah, it's been so much fun. And I uncover new fascinating stories almost every day. And I don't wonder if that's where a lot of the value of this is, is because in, in again, thinking back our military career, we never considered what life outside the military was going to be because we were all so consumed within that military life. But God willing, I'm going to be a veteran twice as long, three times as long as I was in the service and our younger service members, eight, 10 times longer than they served their four or six years. And so when we're in the military, we're just thinking about the military. But after the military, we're really thinking about our legacy and the legacy of those we served with. And that's what I see the Military Women's Memorial doing. Yeah, our mission is so simple. It is to honor and tell the stories of America's service women. That's all it is. And that's what we try to do. We don't necessarily jump on the bandwagon of all of the negativity. And, and to your point, and there are some great organizations that are out there that are fielding and fighting for proper body armor for women military sexual trauma, any of the issues, sexual assault, sexual harassment, any of those, we just, we don't have enough people on our team and it isn't exactly what our mission set is. So we support and we work very closely with those organizations. I testify up on the Hill. I go and meet with congressmen and women and senators to share both my personal story, but also those that I hear on a regular basis to help add sway to some of those issues. But for the most part, we're like that yellow lab puppy that just makes everybody smile. Come to our place, learn about these incredible stories of service and courage and sacrifice that these women have done that blaze trails for people that gave me the right to even jump out of airplanes. And now when I reflect on it, some of the things that I did have given this next generation of young women the opportunities to serve in every capacity. And just last month, we had the four currently serving four-star women, an Army general, an Air Force general, a Navy four-star admiral, and the Coast Guard commandant, a four-star admiral. They had never been in the same room together until they came to the Military Women's Memorial there in Arlington National Cemetery, March 6th. And Nora O'Donnell from CBS Evening News was their moderator for this panel discussion. All of these women came in the mid-1980s, because it takes better than 35 years to, to get that fourth star, I imagine. 
And so talking about what the military was like for them as young officers in the 80s, as opposed to what it's like nowadays. And many of them said that there were certain senior males that said, I don't think you should be on a ship. I'm going to make sure you're not successful. And fortunately, they were of that kind of mentality and their team also rallied around them to make sure that they were incredibly successful, obviously, because you don't get four stars by not being incredibly successful. But it was fascinating to hear them talk about what they have done and what they have seen transpire in this 35 years. And so I, I walk pretty much in, in concert with them coming in just a few years before they did and then retiring in 2018. It's been a fascinating ride. And to watch what women are now able to do, it's mind boggling. And it's exciting to watch. I can't imagine what the next couple of decades are going to look like, but I'm excited for the future. And again, what we do is tell those stories of women that have served and are serving now. So we encourage every woman that might be hearing this and even the men, if you've got somebody in your family, a woman that has served or is serving now, please encourage them to register their story into our database. It's a research database. And sadly, we have a lot of the great stories of the women of eras gone by that are proudly told what they did in World War II. They might have only served for two years, but what a fascinating tale. And now these young women, they don't know their lineage. And so when I ask them to register, they're like, well, I didn't really do that much. You have no idea what you have been able to do because of what they did for you. And so it isn't really, many times, Dwayne, we don't always do things for ourselves. But if you know that it's for others, you'll do it. And that's exactly what this is for too. So that when researchers look to see how things have changed over time, if our younger service women and veterans don't tell their stories into this database, it's pretty stagnant. You can see what they used to be able to do, but there's no proofs that we have tank commanders and we have chief of the boat and we have all these positions. Women weren't even allowed in submarines until 10 years ago. What they have been able to accomplish and say, well, you know, it wasn't that much. No, it's huge. You just don't realize how huge it is because you don't know your legacy. No, I, even as you were talking, I was thinking when we're living history, and maybe we know there are going to be historical moments like 9-11, and obviously what we just experienced with the COVID pandemic, these are turning points in history. But it's amazing to hear that at this period in time for women in the military truly is a turning point in history. Mm -hmm. And in 50 years, the Military Women's Memorial is going to play a key part in ensuring that legacy continues. So I appreciate, obviously, your service and also your continued service. If people want to find out more about the memorial, you're talking about how women veterans and women service members can sign up, or if people just want to learn more about it, how can they do that? The best way is go to our website. It's simply womensmemorial.org. It's all one word, womensmemorial.org. And so you'll find all of that. And in the top right is where anybody, men or women, can create an account. Because once you've done that, you can go in and you can search for a service woman, see if they're registered. And let's say your grandmother is no longer living, but you know she served. You can check to see in the search for a service woman once you have an account if she's registered. And if she isn't tag, you are now it because we want you to try to find a photo of her ideally in uniform and add as much data as you know about her into there because this is that living repository that we're asking. We have 306,000 stories in there now. 
but that's one-tenth of what should be there. And this year is a big year for us too. So come to the website. You'll see we're already talking about the 75th anniversary of landmark legislation, again, in 1948, that gave women the right to have a career in the military. Before that, they could only serve in wartime for the duration of a war plus six months. But this law in 1948 now gave us the opportunity to serve long-term. However, serious caveats. We couldn't be more than 2% of the military. We couldn't hold rank above 05, lieutenant colonel or commander. And we also, as soon as any of us became pregnant, we were instantly removed from the military. You could not stay. And it was that way for over 20 years. As a matter of fact, our first woman to ever become a general, a one-star general, was in 1970. And that was, again, because of laws being changed that they knew they were going to the all-volunteer force, which, again, this year is the 50th anniversary of that. If they were going to have women coming in, they had to lift the 2% cap, and they also needed to lift that rank restriction so that women could see that there was a reason, a trajectory for them to plan on having a more full career. So it's going to be a great year, but go to womensmemorial.org. We've got a 360 virtual tour on the website and all kinds of our exhibits and artifacts are on display. So help yourself and enjoy. We'd love to have you learn more. If you do create an account, we do send out on the first Thursday of every month, a newsletter, a digital newsletter. And that's about it. We don't spam anybody. That's the one you'll get. And if you're If you don't like it, but I can't fathom, you wouldn't love our newsletter. Lots of great information and some videos embedded, such as of the four four stars being interviewed by Nora O'Donnell. We put that in the newsletter. You can always unsubscribe if you care to, but we're hoping you enjoy it and you'd like to stay more involved and come see us. You're going to love the place. If you can come to us physically, please do so. It is amazing. I like to run by it on my, I have a memorial route and I always make sure that I, I make a detour. Phyllis, it was so great to be able to highlight you and the work that you're doing. Make sure that all those links are in the show notes. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you. And if you've not made the run, Dwayne, on up onto our rooftop, please get up on that rooftop terrace. The view up there is stunning from Military Women's Memorial. Come see us. Once again, we'd like to thank this week's sponsor, PsychArmor. PsychArmor is the premier education and learning ecosystem specializing in military culture content. PsychArmor offers an online e-learning laboratory that's free to individual learners, as well as custom training options for organizations. Again, another great conversation. And if you haven't visited the Military Women's Memorial in Arlington, right at the entrance of Arlington National Cemetery, I highly recommend it. And in the meantime, you can interact with the Military Women's Memorial in the virtual space by going to their website. As I mentioned in the episode, and I've mentioned before, I have never doubted the ability of women to serve in the same conditions and at the same level as male service members. When I first joined the military in the early 90s, men and women trained separately in basic training. Basic training wasn't integrated by gender until several years after I went through. But several of my basic training drill sergeants were women, and I served with women for my entire 22-year military career. And now, all occupational specialties are open to women. There are women in the infantry, women tankers, and the prestigious range regiment. This was inconceivable to many, even 25 years ago, much less when women were provided the opportunity to pursue a military career 75 years ago. If you're interested in not just learning about past history, but learning how history is being made as we speak, then make sure to check out the Military Women's Memorial website or visit the memorial itself. 
So I hope you appreciated my conversation with Phyllis. If you did, we'd appreciate hearing from you. So if you do have some feedback, let us know. Drop a review in your podcast player of choice or send us an email at info at We're always glad to hear from listeners, both feedback on the show and suggestions for future guests. For this week's Psych Armor Resource of the Week, I'd like to share the Psych Armor course, Women Who Serve. This course is an overview of the contributions women have made to our military forces. It is intended for those who want to better understand women's role in our military. You can find a link to the resource in our show notes. So thanks for taking the time to listen to this episode. Make sure to take a look at the show notes, which you can find in the podcast app, as well as on the Psychummer website, psychummer.org forward slash podcast. While you're there, you can find hundreds of online training videos delivered by nationally recognized subject matter experts who are committed to educating the civilian community about military culture. All of these courses are free to individual learners. You wouldn't be listening if you didn't care, and it's that curiosity and passion for supporting service members and their families that we want to encourage and increase. Come back each week for another conversation and make sure to engage with Psychummer on social media to let us know what you thought about the show. I'd like to express special thanks to Operation Encore and Navy Seahawk pilot Jerry Maniscalco for our theme song, Don't Kill the Messenger. This show was produced by Headspace and Timing, and all rights to the show remain reserved by Psycharmor. Much appreciation to the team at Psycharmor that makes the show happen. Carol Turner, Vice President of Strategic Communications, who keeps me on track and is an outstanding guest coordinator. Support and transcripts by Emma Atherall. Feel free to share the show. In fact, we request that you do, but make sure to let folks know where you heard it. Join us next time for another great episode, and until then, stay aware, get educated, and be well.